Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. Sunday night, this Sunday night, don't forget, 6 to 7.30, Ike will be teaching on how to study the Bible. I think I heard a few rumors about people heard something like, homework, <clears throat> homework, what, what do you mean? It's so funny, there's a college that I won't mention that offers a free course on um, how to study the Bible. That's how, and it's a great idea for recruiting people. You come to college, we'll give you a free course on how to study the Bible. And so everybody wants to study the Bible. They show up, they'll have a class the first night, maybe 60, 70 people show up. And then they get a homework assignment. They have to go home and they have to open their Bible and think and study and learn how to eventually use Bible dictionaries or encyclopedias. And about the time they get to the second or third class when their assignments are turned back and they have ones and twos on them out of ten, they begin to realize that studying the Bible isn't a matter of closing your eyes in prayer, saying, Jesus, teach me what it says, and then just write down whatever comes uh, to the front of their mind. And it's amazing how many people think that. Uh, it's amazing how many people think if you have the gift of pastor teacher that you just automatically know Greek and Hebrew. I mean, I, I, somehow people get this idea. I know a guy who was, I mean, this guy is very smart and has had a successful business career, and he went to Dallas Seminary thinking he had the gift, and he may have had the gift of pastor teacher, but he had a such a tough time with first-year Greek, and he just assumed that if you had the gift of pastor teacher, you'd automatically be able to learn Greek, uh, that... Um, that he just bailed out after that uh, after that first semester, but it just because you have a spiritual gift of pastor teacher, remember that's a communication gift. It's not a study gift. Some people don't realize that. They think, oh, I got the gift of pastor teacher. I'll automatically like to study. Well, that's not necessarily true. And there's a lot of people who have the gift of pastor teacher who who know that. But you have to learn how to study, and anybody can learn how to study because the gift of studying isn't a communication gift. So anyone can learn how to study the Bible, and it will improve your own Bible study and help you because the principles for Bible study are basically the principles of learning how to read intelligently and understand more fully and completely that which you read. And the principles in Bible study are are the same as reading anything learning how to use dictionaries and encyclopedias, learning how to do research, learning how to think through the uh, vocabulary, the verbiage of, of everything, that, uh, everything that you read. So that's a great thing that, uh, that Ike is doing on Sunday night. You don't, wanna, you don't want to miss that. It will be a challenge. As, uh, <sighs> Technology is a challenge. I remember when, and I think I told the same kind of story the other night. I remember after years and years of sitting in a congregation, being taught the Word of God word by word, line upon line, precept upon precept, isagogically, categorically, exegetically, the whole bit, and then sitting in a inductive Bible study class my first two weeks at Dallas Seminary. I thought I was going to flunk out. That was the hardest thing I had ever had to do because you, 
You know, y'all, as you know, because I've shown you once or twice what real exegesis is like, y'all never really been exposed to the what lies behind the Bible study, which is that anybody who studies a text has to learn how to just read and study and do inductive work. It's not a matter of top-down, just because I know systematic theology that I can automatically understand the Scripture. It's the other way around. It's the Scripture first, then your theology, not theology, then uh, then your understanding of Scripture. So that, that's always kind of a rude awakening, and many of the people I knew who had a similar background to me just had a tough time those first two or three weeks, and gradually... We, we beat our heads against the wall long enough to where it began to make sense, and then we could figure out how to read the Scripture and understand it. So it is not just a matter of some sort of mystical heebie-jeebie, liver-quiver, uh, wait, the Holy Spirit just going to uh, you know, open up flashing lights on the text, and I'm automatically going to... Uh, see everything and understand everything. It takes time. It takes work. It takes it takes thought. So, uh, but it's fun. As one person entitled their book on Bible study methods, it is the joy of discovery. So, well, before we get started in our study this evening, let's bow our heads together and uh, open in prayer. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you a shot at using First John one nine if you need to. And then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that we can come together this evening to study your word. Your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Father, it is in the light of your word that we see light. The priority goes to what you have revealed to us in Scripture. And as we take the time to study it, to analyze the text, to probe its depths, to think in terms of the language, the structure of the language, the background, the entirety of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation and how everything fits together and, uh, and works together and complements one another, and the, the Scripture never contradicts itself but always complements itself, one area shedding light upon another, and all together it sheds light upon you, it helps us to understand who you are, sheds light upon our own souls, our own problems, challenges, sins, and challenges us in our day-to-day walk with you. Father, we pray that we'd recognize the Bible study isn't an end in itself, but it's a means to an end, and the end is to walk faithfully in dependence upon you, trusting you, applying your word uh, consistently in our lives. We pray that as we study your word tonight, that even though we get into some technical issues, it's not about academics or technicalities. It's about understanding the overall framework of creation and salvation and how all of these things come together in terms of our own personal walk with you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles to Hebrews. Hebrews briefly. Hebrews 7, 9, and 10. We won't be there very long. It's been, uh, I don't know, it's been three weeks, four weeks since we were last in Hebrews. Last time was uh, right before I went to Israel. It's gone a couple of weeks in Israel, and last week we had a special on the temple, so it's been almost a month. 
since we were in Hebrews. And as um, we've come to this last section, and as a, as a communicator, sometimes I wrestle with this because I'm teaching Hebrews, but within Hebrews, within any book, you run into particular verses or topics or allusions to doctrines that are very important to just understanding the flow of the author's thought. And you can come to a passage where the writer throws out a word like justification or propitiation or sin or any number of things, and you know that that it's integral to understanding that verse or that paragraph or that promise but that it's not necessarily a concept that people really understand. And so you have to stop and pause and almost lose the flow of thought in your study of the book just to focus in on this topic or this doctrine or this one particular thing. And we landed on on two verses in Hebrews 7, 9, and 10 that are at the heart of discussion on two very important topics or doctrines. And one of those had to do with the origin and transmission of the soul. And the other one that is always paired with it, always connected to it, has to do with the origin and transmission of the sin nature, Adam's original sin. And so both of these flow out of a certain understanding of these two verses. uh, Hebrews 7, 9, and I have corrected the translation here based on the Greek because the even though uh, most of the translations indicate the fact that you have a manner of speaking or in a figure of speech, something like that, they throw it at the end of verse 9, so it kind of hides itself between verse 9 and verse 10. But in the Greek, this phrase is at the beginning. And that's just one of those things for those of you who are working on observations on Sunday night. That's what an observation is, is that this word is at the beginning of the sentence, so it has, it's, it's in an emphatic position. That's an observation to make. And so at the very beginning of this sentence, the writer says, in a manner of speaking or in a figure of speech. So right away we know he's not talking literally. He's using an analogy. And he says, even Levi, who receives tithes, And he can't be talking about the person, the individual of Levi, because Levi, as a person, the twelfth, one of the twelve sons of Jacob, never received tithes from anybody. He was the progenitor of the Levitical tribe, but it wasn't until several generations later that the priesthood was established at Mount Sinai. Aaron was established as the high priest, and the Levitical tribe was established as the priestly tribe. So right away, he's using Levi as a figure of speech. It is um, indicated a, a, it's either a a synecdoche, I think, or rather a metonymy, where one noun is placed for another, the progenitor is placed for his descendants. So even the use of the word Levi is a figure of speech. Levi, who receives tithes, that is the Levitical descendants, were the ones who collected the three different tithes in Israel. They received tithes, paid tithes through Abraham. Now, none of them were there. Abraham was the head of the uh, of the new Jewish uh, race that God had called out, the new Jewish people. 
And it was Abraham, then Isaac, then Jacob, and Levi. So Levi is a third generation. Levi was not present. He was born a couple of hundred years after the events described in Genesis chapter 14 when Abraham took his servants, defeated the armies of the four kings uh, of the east, and then brought the plunder back to Jerusalem, met with Melchizedek, the high priest, and uh, gave a 10%, a tithe, 10% of that to uh, Melchizedek. But he's making a point, the point in the flow of the argument here, as as I've stated numerous times now, is simply that if Abraham was subordinate to Melchizedek, then any of Abraham's descendants would also have been subordinate to Melchizedek. However, since the early Middle Ages, and sometimes I wish we were free of all theological influence from the early Middle Ages, but not all of it was bad, but there was a lot that was bad based upon the uh, allegorical hermeneutic that was used and various other problems, and there was a development, theological development that occurred from a man that some consider to be one of the uh, greatest theologians of all time. The Protestants call him Augustine. Roman Catholics call him Augustine. He was the Bishop of Hippo, which was located in North Africa. And he is, I would say he is great in the sense that he was probably the most influential for good and for ill, the most influential theologian of the Middle Ages. In fact, when Luther, who was an Augustinian monk, they later developed an order of monastics uh, called the Augustinian order. Now, Augustine did not found that order. See, I I go back and forth because I did my uh, master's work at the University of St. Thomas here in philosophy, so they taught me to say Augustine. It was a tough, tough thing to do. Then I went back to Dallas Seminary, majored in church history, and it was back to Augustine. So I'm really schizophrenic in my pronunciation. So I, one minute it's one, the other minute it's another. I don't know what I'm talking about. Um, <clears throat> so Augustine came along, and um, he, he follows the allegorical interpretation of origin. He never established a, a monastic order. But later, a monastic order was founded in his name. Luther was an Augustinian monk, and initially what Luther is simply trying to do in the Reformation is to get the Roman Catholic Church to go back to Augustinian theology, which he thought was the benchmark of orthodoxy. But as he studies the Scripture more, as you you move through 1516 towards 1517, and Luther begins to write on uh, uh, commentary on Romans, and he's studying Galatians. He comes to understand the doctrine of justification by faith alone, that it is not based upon uh, works at all. But initially, it's this influence of Augustine. So much of his theology, even though, let's say, here's, here's start over here, here's biblical truth. During the period from about 500 up through 1500, the um, let's use let's use a vertical display. Here's biblical truth, and there, there's this departure from biblical truth and apostasy, falling away from the truth during the Middle Ages, where it just gets extremely distorted and perverted. And by the 14th, 15th centuries, you're down here. 
Luther makes major changes and he gets back up to here. But where he makes his big shift is at the most important area, which is in the soteriological doctrines. But in ecclesiology, he's still not very far away from Rome. In his understanding of uh, communion, he holds to something called consubstantiation, which a lot of people really don't know how to distinguish between transubstantiation, which is the Roman Catholic view that the, that the elements, the substance, which is an Aristotelian concept of the bread and the wine actually change, trans, change the substance into the body and the blood of Christ. Luther's view was that the body and the blood of Christ is still with the physical elements. That's why he uses the term con, meaning with, consubstantiation. But that's not a memorial view, which is what we hold. So he's still really close in his views on total depravity as total inability, his views on on uh, some other aspects. He's very, very Augustinian. Uh, Augustinian theology deeply affected uh, John Calvin. Uh, they're still amillennial. They're not literally interpreting the uh, later stages. I mean, you know, eschatology in terms of premillennialism. So it's not. It's only as the decades go by, as you go through the 16th century, 1520, 1530, you get down to about 1560. Then other men come along, the second generation of reformers, and they begin to more consistently apply this concept of literal interpretation and sola scriptura to various theological areas. So that by the time you have the the shift to the next century in the early 1600s, there you began to have men going back to a, a literal view of prophecy and becoming premillennialists. So that, that's what you study in the history of, of doctrine, the history of theology is how, how these movements change and, and are affected. So when Augustine came along and read this, as he was trying to deal with the transmission of the sin nature, he developed a view that became known as seminalism. Seminalism, that the entire human race was physically and actually within Adam when Adam sinned, so that with Adam's sin, it, the whole human race is also sinning. It's not representational. It's not federal. That's a term that uh, comes along later on. And it's based on Hebrews 7, 9, and 10. And this also affects the view of the origin transmission of the soul, the view we studied as traditionism. So this verse becomes a key verse for both of those, and both of those aspects, both those um, understandings of the origin transmission of the soul and the origin transmission of the sin nature are connected to one another. So that's why I'm taking the time in a number of different lessons to just go through these things and try to explain them uh, a little more, uh, a little more clearly. Uh, <clears throat> the idea that the uh, totality of man, including the soul, originates through physical means and is transmitted physically. All of man, immaterial and material, transmitted physically. Remember, I called is called traditionism. That was originated by. Uh, uh, an early church father in the third century by the name of Tertullian. What most people don't point out is Tertullian was a thorough materialist 
and he believed that there was no immaterial part of man. It was all material. And then we studied the uh, theology of creationism that came along, and that is the idea that the physical body is transmitted uh, immediately through procreation, but that the soul was independently created and uh, imparted by God at birth, and that became known as creationism. Creationism is usually associated with a federal view of the transmission of sin nature. We'll get into that a little later. And seminalism and, and uh, traditionism go together. I pointed out in the last lesson that often in theology you find people polarize, and you'll see hear, hear one theologian, and he'll say, this is the way it is, and he'll outline various verses to support his position. Somebody else comes along and says that here's the other position, and here's three or four verses to support it. And sometimes they're both emphasizing things, and there's a way to, to pull them together. Uh, there's different aspects that are true about one and other aspects that are true about the other. So the idea that the sin nature is transmitted uh, physically and that uh, man was, and, and the corrupt, not, not merely is the sin nature translated physically, but the corruption and the guilt of Adam's original sin is transmitted physically is known as seminalism. Uh, this is the view that in Romans 5.12, we have the statement, therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world. How does sin enter the world? And thus, and death spread through sin, and thus death spread to all men. How does death, the, the condemnation of Adam's sin, how does that spread to all men? Is this done physically was man was the human race similarly present, or was Adam the represent, representative representative head? Well, one of the proponents of seminalism was a 19th century uh, Calvinist, Reformed theologian by the name of William G. T. Shedd, who's quoted quite frequently, as are many others, uh, in Lewis Berry Schaefer's Systematic Theology. And I took the time to go through some of Shedd's stuff today and. Shed explains Romans 5.12 by saying, In this case, Adam and his posterity existed together and sinned together as a unity. The posterity, that would be us, the posterity were not vicariously represented in the first sin because representation implies the absence of the party represented. But they sinned the first sin being seminally existent and present and this first sin is deservedly imputed to them because in this generic matter it was committed by them. That's his explanation of seminalism. I've defined seminalism as, quote, as that the entire human race, body and soul, was genetically present in Adam. And uh, then I go on to add that it's usually connected to the traditionist view of the soul. Now, Shedd, who's a seminalist, describes federalism the following way. He says, In this case, Adam as an individual distinct from Eve and distinct from his posterity, whom in respect to the soul he did not seminally include, sinned representatively 
and vicariously, that is, as a substitute, for his non-existent and absent posterity. As their vicar and representative, he disobeyed the Eden statute in their room and place, precisely as Christ obeyed the moral law in respect to both precept and penalty, as the vicar and representative of his people. The sin of Adam, consequently, is imputed to his posterity in the very same way that the righteousness of Christ is imputed to the believer. And this is where I think he makes his logical flaw. Undeservedly or gratuitously, in other words, that the rest of the human human race, in his view, because he doesn't agree with federalism, he says, well, all you're doing is, is, is undeservedly imputing Adam's sin to the rest of the human race. They didn't make that decision. Adam did. Now, the solution that I'm going to teach and develop is that There's elements of both that are true. Christ is physically and genetically related to the entire human race, and the entire human race is viewed as as an integral whole in that sense. That is why the second person of the Trinity had to become a human being, and an angel couldn't die for us, even though an angel would be righteous, but a human being had to die for us because there's this genetic thing that goes through this genetic connection that ties the whole human race together. Whereas you don't have salvation of that type among the angels because among the angels there's no genetic unity. Each angel is created individually. They don't marry and produce baby angels. So you didn't start off with two angels and then they they got married and procreated and made other angels so there's a, a genetic unity among the angels. They're They're all different. So you couldn't come up with an angel that was uh, genetically related to all the angels that could die for the other angels. But God's plan for man was that there would be this unity, this genetic unity, so that another human being could die for the rest. So there is clearly a seminal or genetic connection that's important. But Jesus dies as our substitute. The terms there, vicarious substitute, that's where you usually see the term vicarious and uh, because of the priestly idea in the Roman Catholic Church, they, they sort of bled over into uh, the Anglican Church in, in England. Remember, the Anglican Church in the British Reformation did not start because uh, they had leaders in the Anglican Church who came to biblical truth and then reformed the church from the bottom up. There were numerous... Uh, pastors and theologians in the Roman Catholic Church in England in the 15, late 15 teens and 1520s who were reading Luther and later Calvin who were coming to uh, Reformation convictions. But that's not what caused the split in England. What caused the split in England was the desire to produce a male heir, and Henry couldn't get a male heir produced, so he wanted a divorce from Catherine and and the Pope wouldn't give him a divorce, so he just said, well, I'll start my own church. And remember, Henry VIII is the one who earlier had written a rebuttal. He was, he was brilliant. He wrote a rebuttal of Luther to Luther's position on justification by faith alone, for which the Pope gave the king, the monarch of England, the title Defender of the Faith. And to this day... Elizabeth II is known as the defender of the faith. Where'd she get that title? She got it by inheritance from Henry VIII, who got it because before he split from the Roman Catholic Church, he wrote a paper, a theological treatise, against 
Martin Luther. See, you didn't know that. See, that's free charge, just a little extra bit historical insight for the night. So Henry decides he wants to get a divorce. So because he wanted a divorce, you have a top-down reformation in England. But when you take Western civilization taught by uh, a secular atheist who doesn't know anything about church history and hates Christianity, what they will tell you is that it didn't have anything to do. He'll completely ignore the dimension of theology and theological shift that was already occurring from the bottom up in England. It was happening everywhere. It just hadn't percolated uh, to the top yet. So in England, you have uh, this slightly different uh, shift that takes place with, um, uh, <clears throat> with, the Anglican, with the Anglican Church. Now, I got off onto the Anglican Church, and now I've forgotten why I ran down that Anacoluthan on the... Um, on the, oh, I know why, because they call the, their pastors vicars. And they got that from a holdover from the Catholic Church. Why? Because this view that the priest was a substitute. So you'll see that in reference to, to Anglican pastors. They call them the vicars. vicars, and, even, and in the Roman Catholic Church, the Pope is called the vicar of Christ. It's the idea of a representative or a substitute. So when I read the quote from Shed, twice he used the term vicarious, and I recognize that that's not a term that most people use in their everyday vocabulary. I won't embarrass anybody and say how many people have used that word in the last year, but I bet no hands would would go up, uh, except for maybe one or two of you. I got a couple of dirty looks when I said that, so I knew somebody could use that word. Uh, so Shed goes on. Shed uh, says that, that his basic thing is that, that Adam can't be simply a vicar, a representative of the rest of the human race. So he rejects out of hand the whole, whole idea of federal theology. Now there's another little kinky little twist that comes into this theologically, and that is that uh, federal headship by some people seems to be linked um, inextricably to covenant theology. However, people in the Rome, in the uh, Reformed position are either Seminalists or they're Federalists, and they're all covenant theologians. So I don't know why I have seen this within the last 50 or 60 years that the, fed, federal, the federal representative idea is, seems to be always linked. seems like somebody comes up with an idea. And then they teach it, they're a known name, and the next thing you know, everybody else is teaching it. Nobody goes back and says, well, well, wait a minute, what's the basis for that? So we have federalism, which is the view that Adam stood as the head and the representative of the human race. Adam's decisions were on behalf of all humanity. He's the designated representative. Now, I think both are true, that he is physically related to everyone, and so there's a physical dimension to the transmission of, the, of sin in terms of the sin nature. And there is a federal representative concept that his sin is then, which is the basis for the imputation of Adam's original sin to the physically transmitted corruption or what we also call the sin nature. So that's how they link together. And both there's elements of both that are true. And the issue is on Adam's original sin, which is a technical term for the first act of willful disobedience to God committed by the first man, 
meaning male human, Adam, in the Garden of Eden. It wasn't Eve's disobedience that caused it. The only thing that affected was her. But Adam's sin affected him and all of his progeny. Now, let's look at the, this chart. I, I broke this out. I got this out of a Moody Handbook of Theology, and I thought it was uh, a nice, helpful little chart, the Moody Handbook of Theology, edited by Paul Enns. And it gives you these views. There's actually four views. I've only talked about the two views of seminalism and federalism, but there's actually four. The first is the Pelagian view. Now, some of you are probably going, what's Pelagian? Well, Pelagius, that was his name, was a British monk who lived in the uh, 4th century, 5th century, at the same time as Augustine. And he came to Rome, and he was teaching that everybody was born in the same neutrality as Adam. They weren't affected. Adam's sin only affected Adam. It didn't affect anybody else. And so everybody has what he called pure free will. Now, earlier against the Manichaeans, so you're getting a real history lesson tonight. The Manichaeans were a Persian group that held to dualism of good and evil and and strict fatalism. Earlier, when, when Augustine was debating them, he wrote a tract called On Free Will where he argued for human free will as over against fatalism. But then, when Pelagius came along, Pelagius is teaching that man is totally free, that sin doesn't affect anything. Um, Adam's sin just affected Adam. Augustine seems to swing more towards what seems like a fatalistic position. You're aware of the fact that there's a debate, historic debate, usually referred to as the Calvinist-Arminian debate. Well, that was a thousand years later. The original debate was between Augustine and Pelagius. That's where the, the, if you really ever want to study this thing out to its fullest extent, which most of you probably won't, you've got to start with Augustine and Pelagius. So here's Pelagius' view. On Romans 5.12, he said that people incurred, incurred death when they sin after Adam's example. See, if they don't sin, they don't die. According to Pelagius, it's theoretically possible that someone could be born and just not, not ever choose to sin. And they're not spiritually dead, and they won't ever die physically. They would just go on forever. Uh, his view of Adam was that Adam's sin affected Adam alone. It did not affect anybody else. It didn't affect his descendants. It didn't affect Cain, Abel, Seth, Noah, Abraham, or you. His view of humanity is that no one is affected by Adam's sin at all. Modern adherents of this view are Unitarians. See, this is a view that men are, that human beings are basically, basically good. You know, that expresses itself mostly in a, in a political party, but we won't go there. Uh, if you want to understand that, go read Thomas Sowell's book, Conflict of Visions, where he argues historically that the basic difference between a, I'm not going to say a Republican or Democrat because I'm fed up with both of them, but between a conservative and a liberal is that conservatives believe in the total depravity of man, that man's basically evil, and this is an economist talking. This is not a, not a theologian. And he, so he argues historically that the difference between liberals and conservatives is liberals believe man's basically good and conservatives believe man is basically bad. And everything flows out of that presupposition. 
Just read his preface to his book, Conflict of Vision. It's fabulous. But um, that's the Pelagian view. Now we'll go to the Arminian view. Now, who was Arminius? His name was Jacob Arminius or James Arminius. And he was a Dutch Calvinist. He started off as a strong uh, follower of John Calvin, and he taught theology in, uh, in Holland. And as his view developed, he died somewhat early before the great controversy that bears his name. And his view of Romans 5.12 was that all people consent to Adam's sin, then sin is imputed. So everybody makes a volitional decision that goes along with Adam's sin, and then his sin is imputed to them. So they again, they start off, they're not really dead, they're just sick. They're not spiritually dead, they're just spiritually sick. There's a lot of human ability, things they can still do. His view of Adam is that Adam sinned and partially affected humanity. They didn't, they're not all dead in Adam's sin. View of humanity is that depravity is not total. Now let me stop a minute and explain that term. Very important term. Depravity has to do with the fact that man is not holy or righteous, but he is, he is depraved. He has been affected by sin and corrupted. And the word total means uh, that, it, that depravity extends to every aspect of his being and his person. doesn't mean that he is as depraved as he could be, but that every aspect of his being is equally depraved. And, of course, people aren't as bad as they could be. People can do good. Jesus told his disciples, you then being evil, because they were fallen creatures, know how to give good gifts to people. Though you have a fallen nature, you're evil, you're corrupt, you can do relative good, but it is not a good that can merit God's approval. So the Arminian view is depravity is not total. They're, they're, They're sick. They're not dead. People received a corrupt nature from Adam, but they don't receive his guilt or culpability. And the modern adherents to this view are Methodists, Wesleyans, Pentecostals, holiness groups, Charismatics, Nazarene Church. Those are all part of the holiness groups. And they have inherently an Arminian view of the imputation of sin. Then we come to the federal view. The federal view, sin is imputed to humanity because of Adam's sin. So Adam's sin affects every single human human being. Adam alone sinned, but the human race is affected. Uh, When it comes to the human race, depravity is total. Sin and guilt are imputed. Adam's original sin is imputed to every member of the human race. And those who hold this are primarily Presbyterians or anyone affected by some form of Reformed theology. Historically, those would be denominations like Congregationalists, but they're all very liberal, Arminian now. Um, And many uh, Calvinistic Baptists back in the 17th, 18th century in England, Baptists were all uh, uh, hyper-Calvinists. They didn't believe you even need to witness to anybody because... If God wants him to get saved, he'll save him without any help for you or me. So that was a hyper-Calvinist. But various groups hold to some form of covenant theology or reform theology. 
And then there's the Augustinian view that sin is imputed to human humanity because of Adam's sin. And their view of Adam is that humanity sinned in Adam. They're physically, similarly present in Adam. Uh, depravity in terms of the human race is total. Sin and guilt are imputed. Now, for your more consistent Calvinists or uh, full Calvinists, five-point Calvinists, they would go a step further. They don't just talk about total depravity. They talk about total inability, which means that man just cannot do anything. Uh, they, he can't even exercise a non-meritorious positive volition or faith. Faith is an extra special kind of faith that is given by God at salvation. It is, it is a, once again, it almost goes full circle and ends up back in Arminianism uh, in sort of a backdoor introduction of works sort of way. The Augustinian view is also held by many in the Reformed camp and also by, since they're in the Reformed camp, they hold the covenant theology. So <clears throat> those two views are held by numerous different people. Uh, Lewis Berry Chafer, uh, many other dispensationalists hold to one or the other of these two views. Dispensationalism never been an Arminian system. Okay, the key verse, the key passage that has to be exegeted in relationship to this that is always referred to in conjunction with the uh, passage in Hebrews chapter 7 is Romans 5, 12 through 21. So we're going to take a few weeks to work our way through this very, very important passage. Romans 5, 12 begins with the statement, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. Now let me make a couple of observations for those of you who are trying to learn how to study the Bible under Ike, because you're, I know that some of you are trying to figure out just what an observation is. An observation is saying this is a conclusion. It has a therefore at the beginning, and whenever you see a therefore, you have to see what it's there for. Therefore means it's a conclusion of something. Then the next word is just as. That tells you that there's a comparison that is being made, or a contrast. I will talk about the groupings and comparison, contrast, things like that. Just as through one man sin entered the world, death through sin, and thus. What is thus? Thus indicates another inference or conclusion. And death, thus death spread to all men. Why? Because. See, now you have a causal statement. So you have a number of little terms in there that are very important to spot. Uh, Dr. S. Lewis Johnson, who was the head of the Greek Department of Dallas for many years and a great theologian, even though he was a five-point superlapsarian hyper-Calvinist, he did a good job teaching Greek, and he always made the point that uh, you have better pay attention to your little bitty words because the little bitty words are often more important to understand the flow of thought and the meaning than your, your verbs and nouns. Watch the therefores, the wherefores, and so's, and as's, and all those little connectives that we refer to. So this passage starts off with a therefore, but it's not your normally expected uh, particle of inference, which is un. It is the phrase diatuta in the Greek, which literally means for this reason or through this reason on this ground. And it describes the ground 
the motive or the cause of something. So what is the something that this is the ground of? Is this concluding what he's been saying in Romans 5? Or is this concluding what he is saying in the broader section of Romans 1.18 to 5.11? See, that's another thing that those of you taking the Bible study methods have to do when you start dealing with context is where, how does this fit in a broader context? And this comes, Romans 5, 12 to 21, comes at the end of a lengthy section, the first major section in the book of Romans, which begins in 118. 1, 1 to 17 is your introduction. 118 to 521 is your first section. And so the therefore here in Romans 5, 12 isn't concluding what was said in 5, 1 to 11. It's not concluding 4 and 5. It's con- drawing a conclusion from the entire first section of Romans, which built one major argument, and it's going to end Paul's discussion of the doctrines of what we would call salvation, soteriology, justification, and reconciliation. And Romans 6 is going to begin his discussion of the spiritual life. So this he's built to this grand uh, climax, and now he says, therefore... Just as through one man sin entered the world, and he's excited, and he builds this comparison. He's so excited, and as he gets into it, he realizes, wait a minute, I need to expand on this a little bit. So he takes verses 13 and 14 to uh, go down a rabbit trail called an Anakaluth, and he just kind of uh, sidesteps to explain himself a little more fully. And then he decides he didn't do a good enough job. He's so excited that he comes back in... Um, 15, 16, and 17, and he does it again. He, he So twice he explains himself to get across the first part of this comparison. But you never get the second part of the comparison until you get down to verse 18, then he has to start all over again. And in 5, uh, 18, he says, Therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, See, the as through, that's just that's uh, parallel to what he says here, just as through one man sin entered the world. There he says, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in conversation. Even so, through one man's righteous act. See, that's the other side of the comparison. He's going to draw this contrast and comparison between the way sin enters the world through Adam and the way sin is paid for by the second Adam, Jesus Christ. But in between, he has to make sure people really understand uh, what he is talking about. And this is a, a tough little passage to deal with because he's excited. He jumps around. He, he, um, he stops and starts up somewhere else, which is called an apotheopesis. Don't you just love these fun words? You never heard them in any, any literature class you took, but in Bible study methods, you get to learn all these great things. He just stops abruptly because he's so pent up with so much to say, and then he jumps to something else to fully explain it. There's a, a loss of transition there that's represented in the, in the translation by that double hyphen that's there. And the, the translators recognize that verses 13 and 14 are really uh, an expansion and development of what he is uh, what he's been trying to say. So he starts off saying that for this cause, 
There, for this cause, because of everything I have said up to this point, so this section is going to amplify or expand on the entire previous section, and it gives a conclusion to that first section of the, of the epistle. Then the next phrase indicates that he is building a comparison. He says, a host fair in the, in the Greek, just as, he's going to compare two things. So when you see that, you expect to have two different parts to this, this comparison contrast, but you only have one in 512. This introduces a comparison and contrast bef- between the first Adam and the second Adam. So there's, there's important, it's important to understand this parallel between what Adam, Adam does with his sin, how that is imputed and transmitted to the human race, and what Jesus Christ does on the cross, how that is imputed and transmitted to the human race. He says through one man, and he uses the word anthropos here rather than Adam. He later identifies him by verse 14. We know it's Adam for sure. Uh, but here he uses the generic anthropos, which speaks of a human being. Through one human being, sin enters the world. And here we have the Greek word hamartia. You have the noun twice. You have the verb hamartano uh, once. But they all have the idea of missing the mark. And the mark is the righteous standard of God. That is what sin is. Sin is not a violation of your parents' rules. It's not a violation of your friends' rules. It's not a violation of school rules or company policy. Sin is a violation of God's character. That's why in Psalm 51, when David confesses his sin of adultery with Bathsheba and the murder of Uriah the Hittite, he certainly hurt a lot of people. His sin had enormous consequences for numerous people. But he says to God, against thee and thee only have I sinned. Why? Because sin, by definition, is a violation of God's character, not any, anybody else's. So sin isn't defined by its impact on human relations or human standards, but divine standards. So it's through one man that sin enters the world. Now, we're going to have to come back and talk about this a little bit, because in the singular here, it's not talking about personal sin, which would be a plural, as much as it's talking about the principle of sin, i.e., the sin nature, this constitutional corruption and guilt that not only changed Adam, but changes all of his progeny, so that not only does Adam become spiritually dead, but all of his progeny are born spiritually dead, but physically alive. Now, this is just one of several words that are used in the Bible for sin, and I just have time to run through two or three of them tonight. I'm going to come back with a complete list of uh, Hebrew terms for sin as well as uh, Greek words for sin. But this, these four that I'm giving you tonight, hamartia being the first, give you an idea, uh, are all used in this passage in Romans 5, uh, 12 to 21. Hamartia is used three times in verse 12. And I'll tell you something about its significance. And it's uh, used several more times in the remainder of the passage. The next word is parabasis, or parabasis, means offense, and um, it's from a verb meaning to transgress or to break the law. That's its 
root meaning transgression means to violate a law, to break a law, uh, to transgress its commandments. Uh, uh, Parabasis is used in Romans 2.23, Romans 4.15, Romans 5.14, Galatians 3.19, 1 Timothy 2.14, Hebrews 2.2, and Hebrews 9.15. Now, a word that sounds similar, but they're not related, is our third word for sin used in this passage, and that is paroptoma. Paroptoma is uh, means to fall by the wayside. It is sometimes translated transgress, but it has the idea of that which uh, is a violation of moral standards, uh, the idea of wrongdoing. It is used 19 times in the New Testament, and five of those, that's almost 25% of its uses in the New Testament, is in Romans chapter 5. So that tells a very significant word. It's used in synonymous constructions with um, homertia uh, and homertano. The fourth word that's used in this passage is parkoe, which refers to an act of disobedience, violating a command, doing that which is wrong. So these are four words, four synonyms for sin that are all used in Romans chapter 5. Now let's just have about five or six points before we uh, finish up, just in terms of introduction of this concept. First of all, there are different uses for the word sin in the Bible. Sometimes it refers to personal sins. Sometimes it refers to the sin nature. Now there's some debate among scholars as to what nature is, and that gets real abstruse. And basically it refers to a, the, the basic orientation, corruption of, of, our, uh, of our being, of who we are in the image of God. There is a corruption. Uh, there is a death that occurs. So our first point is there's different uses for the word sin. We have to distinguish between personal sins and sin nature. Second, a second use... Uh, beyond personal sins is that which has to do with this capacity of sin nature, which we're going to, I'm going to use the term sin nature, but I try to use synonyms like corruption, guilt, spiritual death, all of which go together. It's not just uh, sin nature. And then we have to discuss where, where this corruption lies. And that's what it is. It's not like it's some little thing that's in your soul somewhere, in your body somewhere. It is a corruption that like the, um, you know, the nerves in your body just extends through everything and impacts everything. Third point is sin is sin because it violates God's character, violates his righteous standard. It's, um, it's, it's not a violation of God's law. Somebody put it that way because law is more of an expression of God's character. What lies behind God's law? What do we mean by God's law? It's easy to confuse the phrase God's law with the Ten Commandments and the Mosaic Law. It, it's, it's God's character. It's his being. His, his very core righteousness is what is being violated. So sin is sin because it violates God's character, specifically his righteousness. Fourth, Sin first entered the universe through a creature known as, uh, I mean, the King James Version translated the name Lucifer, but in the Hebrew it's Halel bin Shahar. We come to know him later as Satan or the devil. 
and his fall is described and his sin is described in Ezekiel 28, 11 to 15 and Isaiah 14, 12 through 14. And I was going to spend a little more time on that tonight. I'm not now. We're out of time. But it's sad that we live in an, in an era when theologians have uh, come up with, with a lot of reasons why I don't think that holds water at all. Uh, why Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14 don't refer to the fall of Satan. And this has theological implications that are very discomforting, but also exegetical problems and some other things. And, but it's sort of a pop thing to do. Somebody came up with somebody. What probably happened was two or three professors who didn't know each other went off and they studied in uh, Oxford, Cambridge, or uh, Aberdeen, or Edinburgh, or Basel, or someplace over in Europe, and some liberal theologian said that, oh, I just can't believe that. He, And they were somewhat impressed with his argument. They came back, and so they wrote a commentary on Isaiah and said, this doesn't refer to Satan at all. It refers to some mythological being. And somebody picked that up and said, oh, that sounds so scholarly. I'm so impressed. And then they put it into their study Bible. And so you can, Ryrie's study Bible, Schofield's study Bible, about the only ones I know that are left, uh, Haste Prophecy Study Bible, that still hold to Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28, is referring to the fall of Satan. So if you've got the NIV, or you've got the Thomas Nelson Study Bible, or you have the NET Bible, or any of these others, they will probably have in their study notes that this really doesn't refer to the fall of Satan, although some people believe that. It's like we're just a bunch of you know, antediluvian Neanderthals who still believe in stuff like that. And a number of years ago, I read a fabulous Ph.D. dissertation written by a, uh, an individual who util- did a very good job of utilizing all of the Semitic languages and researching every known myth uh, of the ancient Near East, Canaanite myths, Akkadian myths, and he came back and he said, there's no myth that even bears a resemblance to this. And not only that, but the internal evidence, the internal exegetical evidence of Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28, uh, clearly indicate that this is a supernatural being. This No human being could ever fit this, and this can't be dismissed as metaphor or hyperbole or any of the other things that people try to come up with simply because the evidence for that isn't there. So the first sin in the universe is is Satan. The fifth point, the second determinative sin in the universe, and I said determinative sin. There were other angels that followed Satan and they sinned, but the second determinative sin in the universe is that of Adam in Genesis chapter 3. And sixth point, that sin impacts us in two primary areas. One is imputed sin, and the other is the sin nature or this constitutional defect referred to as death. Genesis 2.17, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat for in the day that you eat it. Not 900 years later, but in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. And that this is not physical death is substantiated in Ephesians 2, 1 and 2, where in Ephesians 2, 1, Paul says, You he made alive who were what? Dead in your trespasses and sins. So this death is a spiritual death, not a physical death, because he's talking to the Ephesians who at one time were physically alive, but were dead. They had to be made alive. That's why you have to be regenerated is because you were previously spiritually dead, and that's not just a theological term 
or nomenclature, it, it, it refers to the fact that there was something lost when Adam sinned, something that is gained and acquired at regeneration, and something that, that enables us to have eternal life and to be justified. So that's a little more of an introduction on seminalism and federalism, and we've begun our study of Ephesians, I mean Romans chapter 5, 12 and following, and we'll continue that next week with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, thank you for this time to study your word and to come to a better understanding of, of the dynamics of sin, because as we understand sin and its sinfulness and its extent, then we can better understand salvation, the work of Christ, the second Adam on the cross, and how we are indeed regenerate and saved. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.